Go ahead and open your Bibles there to the book of Proverbs. This morning, we're gonna talk about family, family relationships. George Burns once remarked a number of years ago, happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city. <laughs> Some of you got that. Another comedian remarked, if you ever start feeling like you have the goofiest, craziest, most dysfunctional family in the world, all you have to do is go to the state fair. Because five minutes at the fair, you're going to say, you know, we're all right, we're near royalty. All right, no one got that one, all right. You can find families that are different than yours, maybe uh, weirder you think is your family's weird or whatnot, but regardless, they are our family, they're, they're, they're our loved ones. We love them re regardless of what happens and, and recognizing that no family is perfect. Some families are more healthy than others in relationships. Uh, so the question isn't how can we have a perfect family, but the question is what does the scripture say and how we should live with one another in wisdom? And this morning we're gonna continue in the book of Proverbs. It's one of the most practical books of the Bible. It's a book that provides wisdom for everyday situations. The way we have been approaching this book has been by subjects, trying to systemize the sayings about a particular subject and then looking at those key passages uh, throughout that subject. The first week, Pastor Ryan looked at the theme of the book, which is wisdom. And last week, we looked at the subject of friendship. And this morning is family and Lord willing, next week, we're gonna look at the subject of anger. So some of you here this morning, I recognize, are married. Some of you are not. Some of you are married with kids, some have kids, but they're no longer at home. Some aren't married and some don't have children at all. But regardless, everyone sitting here this morning is part of a family. Young or old, married or single, male or female, you have a family of some type. And what this means is that there's something here this morning for everyone seated. I realize that it might be easy to tune out certain points as, as we walk through this sermon because they're not you think applicable to you. You know, think Jeff's gonna talk about parents now and children, I don't have kids, so I'm gonna tune out. And I wanna encourage you not to do that. I want you to listen carefully because the themes of wisdom run through all of the relationships that I'm gonna cover this morning. And there's literally something here for everyone. And furthermore, God has placed you in this church family, and if you're here, you have a ministry here. You may learn something this morning that will help you in your ministry, whether here at the church or even in your extended family or your neighborhood. We cannot approach the Proverbs, though, or any other scripture for that matter, with a, a consumerist mindset. What do, I mean, what do I mean by that? So many of us sit down with our Bibles open, hoping to learn from God to get something today. Now, what can I get out of it? What, what's in there for me? And some days you walk away and don't feel like you've received very much. And then you talk with a friend or a neighbor and realize that what you learned in the morning, you can now share with them in their lives. So we must listen, not only our times with God and our word, but in the sermons with a different kind of grid. How, how can we connect, grow, and serve not only uh, non-married people with no children, but perhaps with married people with children? So don't tune out, tune in, and, and, and listen to see what God could could use this morning as we walk through the book of Proverbs in regards to the family. Really, this book talks about wisdom, and if you're honest with yourself, we all need wisdom. 
We need to, to learn how to live in this broken world. How does God help us to live wisely, even beautifully in our family relationships? We all want that, and God wants that. So how should we live with one another? That's my goal this morning. I want to walk through three subjects this morning. If you have a bulletin, actually, on the back side, I did this last week, and I'm hoping to do it uh, next week also, but of an outline and some Proverbs that we're going to cover, uh, some there just for your reference. But the three points are husbands and wives, subject one, parents and children, subject two, and, and third is families together. So I'm going to make note of that, and we're going to pray and, and dive in here. So join me in prayer. God, I thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for the opportunity that we have as the body of Christ to look at your word. I thank you for the families that you have given us, God, the relationships that you have given us. And I pray that you would give us understanding this morning as we look at your word. Pray that you would change us this morning, convict us, cause us to become different than when we came in, more like your son. Give us understanding, give us under application for this time and this word this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. The first subject is husbands and wives. What does the book of Proverbs say about this relationship of husband to wife? The first thing I wanna mention is that it's a covenantal relationship. It's a relationship based on a covenant. I didn't include this passage in your notes. You have to jot it down. But Proverbs 2, 16 and 17. It says, So you'll be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. And he talks about someone. He says, Who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Now listen, marriage is a covenant. This means it's a binding agreement. It's more than just a promise. And I'm afraid that in 2017, making promises has fallen by the wayside. It's old hat. It's something that maybe your grandfather or great-grandfather did, but not now. I, I've even had people balk over having a wedding ceremony before. Uh, they, they, they've said to me, I, I don't need a piece of paper to tell someone that I love them. And you're right. You don't need a piece of paper to tell someone that you love them. But actually, a wedding is not a declaration of present love. Many think that it is. It's a, they think it's just the, the lovey, gushy ceremony, and I'm not trying to bash that. That's part of a wedding ceremony. But a wedding ceremony isn't just a declaration of just present love. It's a promise for future love. That's what a wedding is. I mean, listen to any wedding ceremony from any culture or religion and church. Listen to the vows. And they won't say anything about how you feel now. Here's one. I take you to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to lead, love, and to cherish, till death do us part, I pledge myself to you. There really isn't anything there about feelings because feelings change so quickly. Now listen, all you young people here who are in love, thinking you've got the right one. And I'm happy for you. Pursue love. Pursue it in a holy way. Pursue it in a God-honoring way. But realize when you're old like us and life is hard, you may be wondered, did I marry the right one? And the answer is, look at the name on the marriage certificate. 
You find out if you marry the right one. Our, our wedding vows are about behavior, not feelings. And the vows are always a promise to be tender, to be considerate, to be faithful, to be loving in the future, under any circumstance. That's what vows are because marriage is a covenant. It's not just a declaration of present love. It's, it's a promise for future love. It's a promise of commitment. It's a promise of faithfulness. And I say this because it needs to be said. You know, my heart breaks on a weekly basis hearing couples struggling and those considering to just end it. We can't function that way. We stand before God in a covenant before him and marriage is hard. And the temptations are strong in this world. Proverbs 5 explains the deadly lural of this world. In Proverbs 5, it's written from a father to a son, but it applies to us all. It begins by warning his son of the, of the lure of, of those things in the world and would, would draw away him from his bride. And the picture that he paints here in Proverbs 5 is, is very sobering. And then the charge is given to him in 5, 5, verse 15 through 19. He says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. How do you avoid falling in the trap of adultery? You, you follow verses 15 through 19. You drink from your own cistern. Enjoy what you have. They're for you and for you alone. We're to rejoice with the wife, the spouse of our youth. And what he's saying is that your spouse should be your lover. Your relationship with your spouse should be characterized by love and romance and fidelity to the marriage bed. And he's using a Hebrew word, which means your spouse is your most intimate, best friend. So Proverbs says your relationship with your spouse should be characterized by, by romance. And at the same time, your spouse should be your most intimate and best friend. And listen, this is revolutionary to the original audience. They didn't marry because of love. They married because of status and safety. They married for protection and money but not for romance. And then it tells them into a culture that, that had a very low view of women, it says that your spouse is to be your best friend. I mean, this breaks down all the walls for them as they, as they read this. It's ridiculous to them, I'm, I'm sure. But for us, it resonates with us. It makes sense. But, but this is revolutionary for them to have a torrid romance and intimate friendship. This is what marriage is in the book of Proverbs. Well, let's dissect this marriage relationship for a moment. We have a wife and a husband. Who are they? What should they be? You know, the climax of the book of Proverbs is a poem of praise for the ideal woman. She's a role model for sure. Proverbs 31. Turn there and look. Proverbs 31, 10 through 11. And he writes, an excellent wife who can find she is far more precious than jewels, the heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. An excellent wife, 
A godly wife who's seeking after God doesn't just adorn herself, she adorns her husband. Proverbs 12, 4 says, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in the bones. And she's a crown of glory. She does this as a, a virtuous woman. And this is rare in the world that we live. If it was easy, more people, more women, more wives would be virtuous. There's also a warning there at the end of that verse, Proverbs 12, 4. That they would bring shame. And the Bible repeatedly warns about a contentious wife. Proverbs 21, 9, it is better to live in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Proverbs 27, 15, a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. And you think that you're going to be able to fix that leak? Well, the next verse, verse 16 says, to restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. Proverbs 25, 24 says, it's better to live in a place that you find in the attic behind suitcases than in a huge house with an arguing wife. I really shouldn't hear amen from men. That is disconcerting. I've had a pit in my stomach getting to these verses this morning. I don't say this. I'm just reading the verses, by the way, okay? I'm not going to say any more. These are warnings to the wife from Scripture, from God. So I want to make sure that's clear. Proverbs 11:16 says a gracious woman, that's the answer. A gracious woman gets honor and a strong man retains riches. Just like riches flow to a strong and able man, honor comes to a wife who is gracious. But not only graciousness, coming back to the phrase earlier on in Proverbs 31, and an excellent wife is it literally more translated, more clearly translated, a woman of strength. So the ideal woman is strong. Well, how so? The, the poem talks about how she makes money for the family. She's creative and smart. She's gentle and kind to the poor. She's fearless about the future, and she enhances her husband's reputation. Then in verse 17 of Proverbs 31, it says, she dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She's not battling her husband with this strength. No, she compliments his strength. And she's giving herself to her family and to her community and to her church. I realize that maybe some of you wives are thinking, thanks a lot, pastor, for this description. I feel better about myself. Maybe you don't feel strong, you're just tired. Maybe you feel defeated. And, and what you're doing is you're setting up this poem as a litmus test for your worthiness as a wife. And don't do it. When God wanted a wife for your husband, he brought you. God sees you as the ideal wife for your husband or for your husband-to-be if you're not married. God sees you as a precious gift for the one that he has given you in marriage or will give you in marriage. And husbands, you're not off the hook. Proverbs 31 talks about us as husbands. Proverbs 31, verses 28 through 31 says, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Some of you men maybe are thinking now that you haven't been encouraging your wife or valuing her the way that she should be. 
you think about this. I was really convicted over this this week. The word husband is used here as a verb. It means to cultivate. That's what the word means. Our job as a husband is to cultivate, nurture our wives. And we cultivate so many things in this world. Our jobs, our hobbies, our love for sports teams. How are we doing at cultivating our our wife? Nurturing our wife. You know, your lifetime impact on your wife should be that she grows in her walk with Jesus and becomes all that God has planned for her. And God is calling us as husbands to care for our wives, to, to cultivate her, to encourage her, so that later when she's older, she will think, what a life that I've had with my husband. He understood me. He, he cared for me. He inspired me to grow in my walk with Christ. He didn't just put up with me. He loved me. And how does a husband do it in the home? Well, it's not by browbeating her. God doesn't treat you that way, so why would you treat your wife that way? Look again at the verses. He says, her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Her children come and speak respectfully to their mother, and they will tell her of their thankfulness for her sacrifice for them. How do kids learn this? How do kids learn this in the home? They watch you. They won't learn it from school or their friends or television. No, they'll learn it from dad. He sets the tone. And the important word in these verses is praise. A husband cultivates his wife by setting a tone of praise in the home. No put downs, no fault finding. The picture here is the, the wise woman giving herself to her family and to others and she's receiving praise from her husband and her children at home for, and from her community. It says in the gates. And God's desire is for us to fill our homes and our church with this beautiful wisdom where men are not passive, but who are setting a positive tone, and then women are thriving. We are the leaders, men. And listen, husbands, if you don't get radical, nothing will change. Christ got radical on the cross. And he put you with your wife because he loves her. He put you with her as a, as a blessing to her. So get radical, change, begin a new tradition in your home starting today. Don't you think the Lord will help you if you step out on new obedience? We, we need to stop men making excuses and being lazy and let's set the tone in our homes. You've been given a gift of your wife. Proverbs eighteen twenty two: he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 19, 14, house and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. He has given you a gift. And so praise God this morning for the wife that God has given you. And marriage is an incredible gift. It's, it's amazing when two friends take the step in marriage. And when you get married, you begin this, this journey with someone else. And this journey is the person's future potential. You know, our, our society says we get married for personal enjoyment. The ancients 
say you get married for status. Both are naive. The Bible says, think of the gospel. Remember the gospel. We are all made in the image of God and we're both made to be something great, but we're broken by sin. We're just shadows of what we were made to be. But Jesus Christ looks down on us and sees us as we are, just shadows of what we we could be, and he comes and he lays down his life for us. He, He sacrifices himself for our sins. And then he gives us the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And we have this journey in marriage for our future potential, the greatness that God made us for. See, once you understand the gospel, it will revolutionize your marriage. And what the marriage then becomes is a a gospel reenactment. You know, there's most definitely a physical attraction in the the premarital process, but for the Christian, it's not just uh, merely a, a physical attraction. It's not just the attraction of who they are now, but who they'll be in the future. One Christian looks at another Christian and they're thinking as they're wanting to consider a marriage and and they look at him and they say, I see the future and it excites me. I, I see what you're becoming and knowing that you're not there yet. But I see what you're becoming. I see what God is doing in your life, making you and causing you to become like his son. And I want to be there for the whole process. You know, my wife has lived with three different men since we've been married. Now, don't go spread rumors. All those men are me. Do I need to repeat that? They're all me. I've changed in 13 years of marriage. I'm a different man than I was when we stood there and communicated our vows to one another. I'm not the same, and it's not because of me. It's not because I look back and think how great Jeff was. It's because of the gospel. My wife, she's different. It's because of the gospel. And we have more changing to do, and our hope is not in ourselves. It's not in our circumstances or ease of life or having a home. It's all in the gospel. What gospel does, it changes us. When you enter a marriage, you want to sacrifice. You want to help and serve. You want to minister to one another. You, you say to one another, I want to be there through this journey to see you grow and change and become more like Jesus Christ. You don't have a consumer mindset. You have a, a servant's mindset. You want to serve one another. There's much more to say about marriage, but that's for another sermon. We're going to move on to the second subject here. Parents and children. The home is a place for instruction. Turn to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. He says, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. You know, you understand what these verses are saying to us as parents. The home should not only be a place of safety and comfort, it should not only be a place of provision and joy, but the home is 
a place for instruction. You cannot sub out your child's training. The plan of God is for moms and dads to be the central figures in passing of wisdom on to their kids. And I'm not talking about homeschooling versus public schooling or private schooling. That's above my pay grade. That's not what I'm talking about. We should be looking in our lives with our kids for opportunities throughout each day and week to be teaching them. And with our current culture in which we live, the responsibilities of work and other things, it makes it harder for parents to be with their kids. That means we need to be more creative and more disciplined in that. And you can't be teaching your kids if you're not learning. You should be students of the word and passing out what you're learning and growing it. And one of the best things for your children is for you to be aggressive in your spiritual growth, allowing God to change you and shape you into a godly parent. Because if all you do is teach your kids how to to load the dishwasher and make their bed and change the oil in the car and getting good grades, then you have left them defenseless in this world. The scriptures say, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like the roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith. So our job as parents is to instruct our kids. Another way we instruct in our homes is through discipline. I realize this is taboo in our culture. But the book of Proverbs spares no expense to talk about discipline. Proverbs 22:15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Notice the word folly or foolishness. It means that children are naturally unwise. Why is that? It's because they're naturally self-centered. We, we come into this world thinking about who? You can answer. Ourself. If you've not seen that with kids, you literally just come on pop over our house, okay? Every morning. And we as parents come to instruct, to, to discipline that. So they can be in touch with reality. Kids don't come out into the world concerned with other individuals. They don't understand how people, other people feel unless they're taught. And their life will be a disaster unless you intervene and give them wisdom. And what's the intervention that's given throughout the book of Proverbs? It's discipline, it's correction. It's aligning them with God's word so that they will know and understand how to live in this world. We, we don't discipline to gain mastery over our kids. We don't discipline to put them in their place. We don't discipline so they won't embarrass us. That's, that's not what discipline is. No, discipline is because we want them to reflect Jesus. We want them to follow him, to be obedient to his word. And parents, don't be afraid to disappoint your kids. Your job is to not make every dream come true for your kids. I'm not saying you shouldn't give them what they need. Just be sure you understand between the difference of want and need. They don't need an iPhone, but they do need food to eat. And more importantly, our kids need rules to guide their behavior in accordance to Scripture. Our kids kids need to understand consequences for actions, and we We cannot be as parents who are constantly coming alongside and trying to alleviate those consequences. You know, when they're old and they have a job and their boss is waiting for them to bring an important report down and he goes to the office and sees that your child's not there, they skipped. They took a day off. 
there'll be consequences, right? A loss will come. And unfortunately, there's a whole generation right now who haven't been taught by their parents that there's consequences for their actions. Instead, mommy and daddy run to the rescue instead of allowing them to learn. And if we want our kids to grow in wisdom, we teach them, we, we discipline them so that they learn that there's consequences. Kids, I want to talk to you for a moment. You have a part to play in this family. You should show respect to your parents. Here's a gem for you, okay? Parents, you're going to want to write this verse down, okay? Proverbs 30, 17. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by vultures. <laughs> we need to get that on the wall at home, Katie. Okay. Hey, can we have that a part of VBS? Is that too late? Or? I mean, the meaning is clear there, right? You understand what he's saying? The eye that, that this, this child that shows constant disrespect to the parent will be dealt with by God. God sees and hears all. Proverbs 20, 20, if one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. Now listen, Satan is the father of lies and he is the first to disrespect the authority given. He couldn't accept his position. He needed more, he wanted more and so he rebelled. And kids, if you're sitting here living in a disrespectful way of your parents, realize that it will not go unnoticed by God. Living under authority in God's way of training is, is for you to learn and understand obedience. If you scorn obedience, if you despise what your mom and dad say, then you're despising God in your life. And God will not reward you for your actions. Parents, we should model Godly behavior for our kids. Proverbs 27, 20, verse 7, sorry. The righteousness who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. You know, there's many things that we want to pass on to our kids. Some want their kids to know how to fix cars and fix homes and fix almost anything. And honestly, I'm very thankful for those parents who continue to train their kids to do that because I'll continue to give you my business as they get older. Other parents want their kids to be excellent students and good grades and advanced studies, and they'll be our doctors. They'll be our lawyers. And praise the Lord, because we need godly doctors and godly lawyers. These are worthwhile pursuits. But listen, parents, if any of those pursuits are taking a higher priority to godly living, then you've missed it. One of the most important and first things you can pass on to your kids is righteous living. We display this for our kids. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are the children after him. Your kids will be blessed as you live righteously in this world. Well, the last subject I want to share this morning is families together. Proverbs 6, 16 through 23 gives us a stepping stone here in these verses. Proverbs 6, verse 16 there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, 
and one who sows discord among brothers. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always, tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you, are, when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Did you notice what the Lord hates is tied to the teaching that is given from parents to their children? The doctrine that is taught in your homes is carried with the family. It's, it's bound to their hearts, around their necks. It will go with them in their life, whether they're awake or asleep. And what is taught now in the home for families is a light for their path. And the six things that are listed are, not, are to be a warning for us and our families. Pride, lies, anger, manipulation, wickedness. And the seventh, someone who wants to divide people. Families, we need to fight for unity. The home is supposed to be a place for peace. It's not that you won't have trouble or pain the home is for families where the word of God dwells richly. And these verses are a warning for us as we live in families that we shouldn't be the one that stirs up. We shouldn't be the one that causes the divide. You know, unnecessary conflict is a community killer. Are you hearing this, brothers and sisters that are sitting here? You know, I was a brother too, and I remember many times causing division with my brother in the home just for plain fun. It wasn't okay. We need to strive to be unified in our families because that will bring the most glory to God. And, and the word brothers here at the end of verse 19 can mean a few things. I mean, it can mean siblings, as, he, as I referenced it. It can also mean citizens in the same community. So the word can be applied to us seated here today part of the community of Edgewood Bible Church. God hates it. He hates it when people in the church cause a division. We should always look to be sowing peace in our families, especially the family of faith. So in a sermon like this, it's hard to hit everyone, as I said, on where they're at in life. There are a few questions that come to my mind as I wrap up things. Maybe this applies to you, maybe it doesn't. Question one, how can I stay in this journey of marriage with a difficult spouse? The answer is what I shared earlier in Proverbs chapter two, verse 17, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. You made a covenant. Remember that Jesus Christ made a covenant with the Father to come to earth and make us his bride. And when he got here, what did we do to him? We killed him. And so maybe you think that your spouse is difficult. But does it compare to the treatment that Jesus faced for your salvation? Now, I'm not excusing sin in any way. And if your spouse is sinning against you and you're fearing for your life, you need to call the authorities quickly. I'm speaking to the couples here where, where one spouse is not really living for Christ. They're neither saved or they're not living that way. And your job as the offended spouse is faithfulness to the marriage covenant that you made before God. God is with you in that difficult marriage. He is faithful to you. And if your spouse is the center of your life, you're going to be a lousy spouse. 
Do you know why? Well, let's say your spouse has some terrible problem, a physical problem. You're going to be so upset and afraid, and you won't be able to support what they need. And if your spouse is not giving you what you want, you're going to be upset because your spouse is the ultimate source of your worth, the ultimate source of your meaning and happiness. Ultimately, your spouse needs to be demoted, and Jesus needs to be promoted to be the center of your life. And if he's not, you're going to be a lousy husband or a lousy wife. You see, when Jesus is at the center of your life, you're not shocked when someone sins against you because you see yourself in light of who Jesus is. You're quick to forgive. And you may say, you, you, you sinned against me, but I sinned against Jesus in a much greater way. He loved me and he covered me anyway. And I can love you and I can cover you now. And you will never react this way unless Jesus is at the center of your life instead of your spouse. Question two. Maybe the question that, well, I've heard it in the last year. The question is, where is my spouse? Meaning, why am I not married? Single people here, I know that desire to be married. You seem like you can't handle life now without being married. And they go to weddings and they say, I can't stand this. My, when is my wedding going to happen? Well, what I said to the married people still holds true for you. You're going to be a lousy spouse unless Jesus is the ultimate source of love and significance in your life. Whether Mr. Right or Miss Right comes, you have the ultimate spouse in your life and he's going to get you to your future glory, heaven. And when you're at a wedding and you feel like it's taking forever, it's too hard, you remind yourself that there's only one person in the universe who can give your soul what it longs for most. And he's waiting for you in glory. And realize this, your, your wedding day is coming no matter what. It really is. Your wedding day is coming in heaven. And it'll be perfect when the bride of the church is brought to the groom Christ. Question three. How do I honor my parents? How do I honor my parents? We need to strive to honor our parents here on earth. God placed them in our lives. And if God is perfect and good, then he knew what we needed. I know that there are some here that grew up in hard and difficult homes. And it brings pain to your memory, to your childhood. Remember, God was there through it all. Sometimes, God allows things that he hates to accomplish things that he loves. We need to be able to say to our parents, as good or as bad as they are, you stood in the place of God for me at one time. You were my complete source of significance and security. You gave me understanding of right and wrong. You did your dead level best, and I thank you. Because of Jesus, I can now honor you the way that I should. I can forgive you for what you did wrong, and I can love you the right way. We can honor our, our parents. God has graciously given us families. Proverbs 14, 26 says, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. 
The greatest legacy we can leave our families is how to find a refuge in God. Life gets harder than we ever imagined. In those moments, our, our families need to learn to trust in God above themselves. And we as believers can be an example of where we should go when we suffer, where we draw strength when we're weak. And in the same way, our families can see the legacy that we leave behind. And I pray that all those that come behind us and our families will see the faith that we had in God. And they'll hear us recounting again that God is our refuge. That he is our strength. And they would find the same refuge in him that we did. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the beautiful thing that you've given us in this world of families. God, I thank you for the beautiful picture of marriage. A husband and a wife joined together. I thank you for the work that you do in marriages of bringing two sinners together. Two selfish people who are used to thinking of themselves and now need to think of one another. God, I thank you for the beautiful marriages that I see in this church family. Of the love and the commitment. And God, I pray for the marriages that are whether in this church or in others that are on rocky ground. God, help us to to pray for those marriages, to encourage, to not beat up those people, but to come alongside with grace and love and truth from your word. I pray that each spouse in those marriages would remember the covenant that they made before you. And even though things may seem hard now, that you're faithful in the midst of it. And God, I pray that you would repair those marriages that we would see the gospel shine in that relationship again. God, I thank you for the kids that you've blessed us in this, in this church family and the many families that are represented here and the privilege it is as parents to be entrusted with kids that were loaned kids by you for a time, for a period. And I ask that you would give us strength as, as moms and dads I ask God that you would give us patience. That we would be patient with our kids and patient with you as you work in their lives. Help us to be faithful as instructors in the home. That we would be make our home a, a joyful place that we could think and remember the gospel. We think and remember you. We would encourage our kids on a daily basis. I pray for the kids that are represented here that are part of this family. Whether they're part of a big family or small, may, may they look to be unified, sibling to sibling. Look to love one another. God, I pray that our, our, our church as a, as a family together can be a good representative to the world of, of healthy marriages and healthy families. Give us grace in this pursuit. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.